Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Welcome to another episode of the Open Apple Podcast. My name is Mike McGinnis, and usually this is where you would hear Ken Gagne say hello, but Ken is not with us this month. Instead, I have a special guest uh, sitting in for him, Jeff Weiss. Say hello, Jeff. Hello, Jeff. <laughs> uh, so, Jeff, how did you get involved in the Apple II computer? Uh, I began with the Apple II in school where I uh, learned programming and um, sort of stuck with the uh, Apple II through college and afterwards where uh, I got involved with Kansas Fest and... There I met you and one up Richard Bennett, where we started working on the uh, uh, the sys the Spectrum Internet Suite web browser and internet tools. Uh, Richard went ahead and did the TCP/IP and uh, got more involved with bigger and better things with the Apple II. That's right. You, in fact, in, I met you uh, for the first time at Kansas Fest. I think that was in two thousand five. I do not recall which one it was, but that's right. That's where we met the first time. I remember you walking around taking pictures. Yes, I was taking pictures and wondering who all these people were. Um, I think you were probably the second or third person I talked to. I know Ryan Swinaga was the first, but you were you were one one of the people who came up and introduced yourself to me, so that was pretty cool. And, and you've been to, to Kansas Fest every year since then? Is that right? Uh, that is correct, yeah. Um, sort of got stuck with the whole thing, and uh, <laughs> uh, there's some great people there. And it's fun showing off uh, fun things with the Apple II. So we can expect you there in 2013 and beyond? Uh, unless I get hit by a truck. Okay, good. Well, let's hope you don't get hit by a truck. You mentioned Sys and Spectrum and things. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, sure. Uh, Sys is uh, Sys was originally developed uh, to be a web browser that did not require a TCP/IP connection on the Apple II GS. Uh, it required the Spectrum telecommunications software, uh, which uh, was powerful, which was originally designed to have, a, well, not sure original, but the, the, the Spectrum uh, uh, telecommunications software has a Merkle language, which enables programming scripts. So Sys was leveraging the macro language capability plus custom modules uh, that were uh, written in assembly language uh, to combine into a web browser that was not standalone, that does require the Spectrum environment. I was not originally involved with the programming of it, uh, even though we talked about this during uh, my first K-Fest, you and OneUp had went off and started writing the code to do a custom X-Display, that's the terminology uh, within Spectrum, to do an external display, not to be confused with X-Displays that are uh, found on Unix systems. They're nothing alike. Uh, about a month or so, um, about, a, about six weeks or so after K-Fest, I was working on a FTP client that did not require TCPIP, and I submitted it to the Seven Hills team that was uh, in charge of the uh, the web browser at the time. And uh, Dave Hecker, who was the project manager, uh, he 
gave a copy of the FTP software, which uh, was just uh, a text-only uh, downloading uh, version of FTP, gave it to Ewan. Uh, Dave was impressed. Ewan was impressed. And that was the time when I got a copy of the early development of what Ewan had worked on at the time. Since the FTP was written in the Spectrum language, I had started to become familiar with it. And as soon as I got the browser, uh, that you know, was about six weeks or so of development, I looked at it and I thought it was very, very rudimentary. Um, not just the rendering, but the actual the user interface for you know opening pages and, and whatnot. And so I, you know, jumped in the code and started making some changes. Uh, a couple days later, I submitted the code back to Ewan and Dave, and they were again impressed that I had an interest in, uh, you know, improving the software. And they asked if I wanted to be a coder in the project. Um, they couldn't promise me a lot of money, but um, we negotiated how compensation was to occur. And um, for another uh, six months or so, uh, helped Ewan to get a web browser done for a release, uh, I think it was April or May the following year. Well, very nice. And this would have been, what, late 90s, 98, 99, something uh, like that? The browser was released in 97, so we started it, well, I got involved around September or so, 96. Okay. And has there been any development on Sys since then? The browser has gone through... Two revisions since then. There was an update to version 1.1 that was released in 1999, and uh, a version 1.2 was released. Uh, I have to go to the website, uh, sys.gwlink.net, but it was in the early 2000s, around 2003 or 2004 time period. Okay, so this is still freely available stuff for anybody right now. The software is still a commercially sold product. Okay. The source code is on the website that can be downloaded for free. The source code is a uh, GNU public license. So anybody can download it and assemble it themselves. Um, all the steps are there. You can just type one command to do the full assemble, build a entire um, installable package, run the installer, and um, it's available. Uh, but the binary version of the software is still commercially sold through Syndicom. Okay. So we would go to, to Syndicom.com or I guess 16 sector now. To, to buy that software. Correct, and I think it's still being sold for $15. Okay, well, that's certainly reasonable. And what have you been working on more recently? Anything related to the Apple II? Uh, there's been a few uh, Apple II projects that I have been working on. I've dabbled in a few things. Uh, a few things I don't want to mention because if I don't finish, I don't want to pre-announce <laughs> uh, anything that uh, will never come to be. Of course. What, uh, one of the more active projects I'm currently working on is uh, uh, doing some writing for Juice.js. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's going to be a, a one or more uh, series of technical articles um, from the programming perspective. And more importantly, I'd like to announce a uh, some software which I shown through uh, showed at Kansas Fest this year. And uh, all the software is now available, source and binaries. Uh, I had done a presentation at, at Kansas Fest talking about uh, writing classic dust accessories um, using Orca C. And all the software is now available at the website cda.gwlink.net. Great. That's great news. Thank you for uh, sharing that with us. Oh, you're very welcome. I hope our, the listeners... 
um, who want to dabble in some assembly language or dab dabble some programming rather um, using C um, can uh, uh, take advantage of what it would take to uh, develop CDAs looking uh, specifically like Apple's interface um, that's uh, the CDAs that are in the ROM and um, love to see what uh, others can do with it and hopefully make the source available for to share. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Okay, so the first uh, news item that we have uh, today is the announcement of A2HQ.com by David Finnegan. Now, for those of you uh, who've been active recently in the Apple II community, you know David's name. Uh, he runs the Mac GUI. Dot com website, and he also recently published the uh, the new Apple II Users Guide, which we'll talk a little bit more about later on in this episode. But this particular announcement is the Apple II web hosting platform. Uh, David is going to be providing complimentary web hosting service uh, for any Apple II user out there who wants it. Um, and his announcement says it's with all the extras. It comes with 200 megabytes of storage space, unmetered bandwidth, FTP access. It's ad-free. You can use WordPress to, to do your blogging. It'll come with a photo gallery uh, and private file hosting. Um, it's not available yet, but he says it's coming soon. Um, I, right now, I, I already have all of my websites hosted uh, on other web hosts, so I don't know that this is something that I'm personally going to be using, but it definitely looks like a neat way to get into it if you're, if you're wanting to start your own website, Apple II related. I also run my own web server, so this doesn't target towards me, but for those who don't have their own servers, um, sounds like a neat idea to uh, get some content out there for the Apple II. Yeah, and the best part is that it's free. So, you know, I mean, it doesn't cost you a thing. could be fun to play around with if you've been thinking about doing this. Uh, next up, we have um, Fed Up. This is a new Brutal Deluxe software product. I'm Fed Up is now at version 1.1, and this is Brutal Deluxe's answer to the preservation of five and a quarter inch diskettes on the Apple II. Uh, it uses, it looks like it's EDD compatible. If you have the EDD card, it will use that hardware uh, to help you image your disks. Uh, it handles nibble and timing preservations. Uh, it saves the raw nibbles and their associated time cycles in separate files. Uh, and it's ProDOS compatible, which at, at first glance may not seem all that important, but I think this alleviates the need for that SST program, which broke those images up and into different files and things like that. Uh, funny you should mention that. I've been aware of this concept for about four years now, uh, maybe a little bit longer. I know that it was floating about for uh, having um, someone to write this and look like Antoine and, and Olivier have uh, managed to succeed in getting this released. So uh, uh, credit to them. I was asked to look at something like this and uh, without having any, without having the EDD hardware or much experience with it, I declined um, to proceed. Um, so yeah, I think this is really, really neat. Um, especially this is a a, a great way of um, getting some nibbleized um, or nibbled uh, disks easily to uh, in a uh, to a disk image form. I have one of the EDD clone cards from uh, Ultimate Apple II, um, Henry and. Uh and Anthony's, um, their, their hardware 
project before before they kind of went on hiatus, and so I've been actually kind of digging around in my boxes trying to find that card again so that I can play with this. But it looks really uh, really useful um, for for imaging purposes. And I think it's sort of fun that uh, they did some uh, text graphics. Uh, looks like it's an all text based program, and they have uh, textual graphics for the uh, startup screen. Probably the same software that Crew wrote for uh, you know making um, designing text uh, designing you know. Text screens, I can't say graphical because it's all text, but right. making images on text screens. There you go. Yep. <laughs> and I, I'm scrolling through the uh, through the the data below their announcement here, and it looks like it's a, a fairly simple program to use. It doesn't doesn't look like it requires a whole lot of technical finesse. If that's not your thing, but uh, if if you are interested, they've broken it down. They talk about you know the EDD format and and how that works, the nib, the nib format, the NIT, and then the standard uh, emulator disk and DSK and, and Pronos formatted DSK uh, disk images. So definitely worth checking out. Uh, it's free to download from the website. They've got a nice manual and disk images in just about every format that you could want it in. Jeff, are you uh, are you a slash dot reader? Yes, I am. Did you see this uh, Ask Was Anything? I remember uh, seeing the original announcement for that, yes. I think it was beginning of October, end of September, where uh, Slashdot readers were asked to submit questions uh, for Steve Jobs. Was that was that what you're talking about, Mike? Uh, Steve Was, yes. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, yes. It's hard to, <laughs> be hard to send questions to Steve Jobs. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think Jobs is going to be answering any questions anytime soon. Uh, have, you, have you read through his responses? Uh, funny you should ask that, Mike. Uh, yes, I did read through some of the... Oh, did, did Steve already respond to, the, to some of the questions? Yeah, if you scroll down there, uh, scroll down through the AMA. Oh, look at that. I missed that he had responded. I read the questions. Uh, this is one of the things that I don't like about Slashdot, is that these responses will go up, and, and unless you're specifically looking for them, they can be easy to miss. It doesn't look like he talks a whole lot about... The Apple II specifically, of course, but I mean, it's been more than 30 years since, since he's done anything with that. So that doesn't really surprise me. But if, if you're interested in kind of his views in technology and sort of the way Apple and the industry are headed in general, he's got some interesting insights because he comes from a, uh, hardware hacker technical, technological background rather than somebody who is more into the business side of things like Steve Jobs was. So yeah, it's, I think it's worth a read. Yeah, I, I did a search for the term Apple II on the page, and I do not believe – I did see there's at least one answer from uh, Steve Waz about the Apple II, but generally the um, – but generally that there wasn't – that that uh, it was most – it was typically more questions and less answers, as you pointed out. He spends most of his time talking about, you know, iOS and, and, and Android and sort of where Windows – uh, where Microsoft and, and Apple are in general today. And I think at one point he sort of describes himself basically uh, as a, techno a technology consumer and enthusiast. And if you think about it, it's, uh, as you said, it was 30-some-odd years since um, the original development, and he has gone on to bigger, better things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, at a point where, you know, when you want to get closer to retirement age, you know, you just want to go play with the toys instead of making them. And I, I read a, an interview with him uh, maybe a year or so ago where, where they were asking him more questions about the development of the Apple II and the Apple I and the, the early days of Apple. And he just, he seemed just kind of tired of talking about it. 
You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, if I if I were in his position, I think at this point I'd be kind of tired of, you know, rehashing the same old war stories again and again. So it's it's neat to see him actually talk about and, and have an opportunity to to get in depth into some of the more more recent things that interest him. Exactly, and I, I think that's it's it, it's I think it's great to find somebody um, who has a history of technology, especially for someone who um, you know been working in the business uh, for years and have and you know looking at where how technology has changed and you know looking at what uh, the current trends that have been and what they're coming to and uh, being able to you know uh, provide wisdom of of his perspective and i think all of us will be doing that you know when we reach that same age yep definitely so yeah if if, if you guys if you're interested um yeah take take a read through it it's good stuff um and, and if you just want his responses you can once you load up the web page just do a find uh for steve waz that's the the name that he's using there all one word and you'll get you'll get just his responses because there's there's chatter between the uh the the slash dot users too, which isn't always of interest. So moving right along, Alex Lee visited a Russian Apple computer museum. Um, Alex Lee, of course, is the guy who runs the, what is the Apple two GS website where he archives pretty much every piece of software ever written for the two GS, um, other than stuff, obviously that you can still buy today. That's not up there, but he posts a lot of really great pictures of his trip there. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. You look at this place, and it looks basically the facility is set up to look to resemble a, a current Apple retail store, except that all of the equipment is, you know, the the older uh, vintage, I guess, if you want to call it that, Apple computer equipment. And it's not just Apple II stuff. Obviously, there's, you know, they've got a, everything. It looks like I'm seeing the clamshell iBooks. Um, there's an Apple Pip in there. So, but it looks like he had a great time. Um, I don't know that I'll be buying it ticket to a flight to Russia anytime soon to go see that. But um, if you're in the neighborhood, definitely worth checking out. So if you do get there, the museum does cost 200 rubles to get in. That's about $6.35 of American dollars. Oh, no, way, way too much for me. I'd never do that. Big spender. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And he allows you to uh, try out software. There's a lot of games um, there's uh, drawing graphics with a light pen, print out your graphics. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lots of hand to the, well, at least when Alex was there, there was a lot of hands on, um, uh, trying out the different programs and whatnot. Yeah. I really like that aspect, you know, cause a lot of these places you go into and, and, you know, it's kind of the stand behind the rope and look at it and you can't really touch it or it's running a demo that you can't do anything with. And in fact, this one, Seeing this sort of inspired me, I, I've had a Gibson light pen for a few years, um, and I've never actually plugged it in or played with it, so I, I dug that out last week, and I was just having fun. You know, I don't know that there's a whole lot of useful function for it, but you can draw stuff, and, and it, in fact, Alex has a picture of him, uh, of himself drawing what looks like an Apple II on an Apple II screen, so that's pretty cool. The irony, he drew a 2GS on a 2E. Yes. <laughs> Um, and you know, it, it's not just the standard Apple two gear either. There's, there's an Apple three, uh, the, the Darth Vader black bell and howl two plus is in there. Um, and some other stuff, you know, like I said, the Apple Pippin. So it's not stuff that you're going to see every day. Um, if you go there, but it uh, looks like you might have a good time. He said that they were very welcoming. 
Um, so that's kind of cool. So, yep, there's collectors all over the world. Moving right along, there was a time capsule that was set up 29 years ago uh, and buried in Aspen, Colorado, so 1983. And Steve Jobs' Lisa Mouse, I guess, was put in there, and I guess they lost this thing. They don't know where it is. Uh, what they meant when they lost the time capsule, not necessarily lost the mouse, but the mouse was in the time capsule. Right. They lost They lost the whole thing. And, in fact, there's a cry for help here at the, the end of the article saying, uh, um, if you know where this is, please let us know because we don't. And, and there was a lot more in it than just, obviously, the um, the, the mouse. But uh, I just find it interesting. How do, you, how do you lose an entire time capsule like that? Well, when you think about it, did you ever create a time capsule when you, when you were a kid in school or whatnot? Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, so I have no idea. I mean, I know I was involved with that in, in elementary school, and to be honest, I have no idea if the time capsule is still there, where it is. So it's almost the same thing. Well, sure, I suppose, but I think it's different. It's a little bit different, I, I would assume, asking a, a grade school kid who contributed something where it is as opposed to the school you would think would keep documentation, but I, I guess even that can get lost over time. Yeah, you can see all the the latest news of 1983 if they refine the time capsule. Right, right. So if you happen to have been in Aspen, Colorado in 1983 and know where that is, I'm sure that they would love to hear from you. Uh, are you a are you a big television watcher, Jeff? No, I'm I, no, I'm not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I tend not to be either, especially of the kind of the the prime time dramas. You know the. the police procedurals and things like that. I, My wife loves that stuff, but I'm not really big into it. But I, I happened to be at the gym the other night, and I was watching, you know, they had the big televisions up. And, and somebody on one of the monitors was was playing Oregon Trail, and it turned out to be this CBS television show called Person of Interest. Um, I actually haven't seen this, this episode yet. Um, you know, you're at the gym and, and not really paying too much attention. Um, but I did do a little looking at person of interest in general, and I guess it, it looks like it's a more hacker friendly show, I guess, if you want to call it that, or at least tech friendly show than most of these other primetime dramas in that they tend to get their tech right more often than, than these other shows do. Uh, this, uh, was the second episode of the season. It was called Bad Code, and it looks like they did the thing that, that the TV shows do where they jump back and forth between now and 30 years ago or 10 years ago or whatever. And they were, they were jumping back in time and showing this girl playing the game Oregon Trail before she disappeared. And I don't know how much the game actually figured into the plot of the show itself. Um, but if you're interested in that sort of thing, maybe that's a show that you might want to watch. I don't know. So Apple II's go from lost to person of interest. It's all over TV. <laughs> well, I think in this case, the, the game was actually being played on an IBM. It didn't look like a, a 2GS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but still, it's, you know, lots of people know the, of the game on an Apple II. Right, yeah. The, the, the connection, the direct connection from the TV show to the Apple II is a little tenuous, but we can we can sort of draw our own lines here. Um, what about movies? Are you into movies? Movies are good, yes. Have you seen Wreck-It Ralph yet? No, I've not. Apparently, Wreck-It Ralph is a movie that's based on washed-up video game characters, and they sort of go on some sort of adventure. I haven't read too much about this movie. Uh, Ken, I know, was definitely enthused to see it. 
Um, and maybe I'll pin him down in the next episode and we can talk more about that. But it looks interesting. I, I think to me, what's more interesting is I, as, as I mentioned with the Oregon Trail thing and now with Wreck-It Ralph, I'm starting to see these, these icons and, and trends from, from my youth show up recycled in movies and television shows. And I think that probably has a lot to do with the fact that the, executives who are now making these shows are my age and grew up with the same stuff that I did. And the writers. So maybe one of our listeners out there can write up a little review and send it into us and tell us what they thought about Wreck-It Ralph, or I'm sure Ken will have something when he gets back. Um, are you familiar with David Grealish? The name sounds familiar, but um, what has he done? Well, he's actually on uh, a sort of semi-competing podcast of ours. He's on the Retro Computing Roundtable he published a magazine for a while about uh, collecting vintage technology. Uh, I recently re-released that, and he has started a petition asking Apple Incorporated to create a public venue or a visitor center or something like that at the new UFO mothership thing that uh, Steve designed that they're building. The new Apple headquarters, right? Yes, that's the one. Um, and I guess he's he's sort of looking for, it looks like a probably more a, a museum type thing, you know, uh, um, I mean, the, the current Apple computer, if you, your current Apple Incorporated, if you show up there, they have a store where you can go buy stuff, but they don't really have a whole lot else that that's good for visitors. So I, I guess he's looking for something more than that. If Apple wants to uh, recognize their heritage of the, uh, of the vintage platforms. The thing is, you know, certainly during the Steve Jobs years, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's going to change now that he's gone all that much, but they've never been... Apple's never been a company to look back or remember its past. You know, they don't really celebrate their their anniversaries. They don't celebrate their, we released this 25 years ago today. Um, and Jobs was never one to, you know, he would he would quickly burn down the past if it meant that he could build a better future uh, product. So, uh, but he's gone, and I don't know if the, you know, I know a couple of other executives that were at Apple are out now as well. I don't know if this that sort of change up high would, would bring any, any, um, would increase the possibility of this happening. But I think it'd be kind of cool to have that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, school kids, uh, in Cupertino and, uh, the Silicon Valley of California, uh, you know, having a museum at one of the, uh, big computer companies in the area. Oh, great. Yeah. A lot of history that can be learned. Yeah, well, and I remember that um, there was talk, um, re- I guess last year, or maybe it was earlier this year, I don't remember, Apple donated a whole bunch of stuff to Stanford, the the Stanford collection, the Apple collection. It was a lot of a lot of their documentation about their early days. And I know at one point that had been gathered because they were actually going to build some sort of corporate museum, and I think that sort of was killed when, when Jobs came back to the company in 97. Uh, so it's not like they would have to look very far to get the stuff. And in fact, you could even have, you can even have rotating, you know, exhibits and displays and stuff like that because you just go to Stanford and say, hey, could we have this for a couple of months? Sounds like a great idea. Yeah. So here's, uh, crossing our fingers and hoping that that goes somewhere. I remember at a recent Kansas Fest, you set the record for, um, Oh, I'm drawing a blank on the game we always play. Um, yes. Uh, the tile game, you mean. Shizen, yes. Yes. 
So you set the you set the the speed record for winning that one, um, and and we were just completely blown away because it was under a minute. I think it was something crazy like that. Um, I don't remember ever completing a game under a minute, um, but um, I know it was pretty okay. close. <laughs> it was pretty close. It was it was like like it was far and away the best time. Sure. Um, but um, so so is that? I mean, do you do you pl- do you do a lot of Apple II gaming these days? Uh oh. Um. Uh. Generally, no. Uh, I haven't played Shizen um, in a while. When Shizen came out, I, I was a little late to the uh, run. No pun intended. I was a little late to the game, so I didn't start playing the game until a couple of years after its initial release. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I have affinity towards Apple II games, and that was the with an Apple II at home. That was my game platform um, compared to others who. Uh, we didn't. We didn't have a, a dedicated game system for the television, so um, I, I see a personal computer as the game platform. And being an Apple II, um, it was uh, there was plenty of games for it. Uh, so yes, I, I do like playing games on the Apple II, and uh, I mean there aren't that many new games made, but I would certainly look at any fun ones and uh, certainly play it on an Apple II. Okay. Did you ever play one called Shadowgate? I remember Shadowgate, and yes, I did play it on the Apple II, on okay. the Apple II GS specifically. Right. I think it was. I don't think that was. Was that even released for the 8-bit Apple II? I don't think it was. I do not believe so. I think um, it basically used a Macintosh port or whatnot, and uh, uh, the advantage of the 2GS version was it had color and better sound. Well, the reason I, I bring this up is because there's a, a new Kickstarter uh, project to do a remake of Shadowgate. Um, for those of you who listen to the show on a regular basis, we talk about new Kickstarter projects pretty much every month. And in fact, maybe we should just start a new section for that. But anyway, there's a Kickstarter to do a, an updated version of, of Shadowgate. And the way obviously Kickstarter works is the more that you donate, you donate at certain giving levels, I guess, if you want to call it that, and you get things back for that. Um, so, and this one you can start. Uh, with as little as ten dollars, actually, it's there's a, you can do a one dollar minimum pledge on this if you want to. But if you pledge ten dollars or more, and, and this actually uh, looks like that level's already been sold out, but at fifteen dollars or more, they're they're promising Shadowgate to be a digital DRM-free download for Windows or Mac. Um, you'll get that. You'll also get a five pack of uh, their their favorite wallpapers in tons of different re- resolutions, which. Isn't a whole lot, but for 15 bucks, you know, I, I still think you're getting something, and that's not bad. And it, it looks like it goes up every few dollars, 30, 60, 95. Um, and the top level for this pledge is uh, $7,500 or more. There are only two donations for those. Nobody has bought that one yet. Um, but if you do this, they will fly you out to Virginia for a weekend with the Shadowgate creators, Dave Marsh and Carl Roloffs. Um, and it looks like you get to hang out uh, on the weekend and brainstorm with them for future Shadowgate titles and play play the game with them. Um, I, I don't know that, and it looks that's for domestic backers only. So if you're not in the U.S., you won't get to do that. But that's certainly more money that I would spend. But I guess if you're really into Shadowgate, um, you could do that. So the question is, if you already live in Virginia, will they fly you between point A and point B? I, I imagine they'll probably just drive you at that point. So, it, yeah, like I said, it, um, this particular uh, Kickstarter currently has uh, reached 
as of this recording, $64,830 of a total requested $120,000. They had 2,002 backers. Um, This Kickstarter is open until Sunday, November 25th. Uh, So it looks like they have a pretty good chance of making it since they're just over halfway already. And the graphics look awesome based upon the pictures on the Kickstarter site right now. Yeah, they really do. This is this is one that I plan to donate. Uh, I plan to, to pledge for. I don't know that I'll be doing seventy five hundred dollars, of course, but um, certainly something because I uh, Shadowgate was a favorite game of mine growing up. It was one of the first games I played on the two GS, and was really just kind of blown away by it. So it'll be nice to see that again. And this version is not a port. It'll have brand new features. New puzzles. So, uh, just because. So, if in case you have finished the old one, this one's going to be different. Okay, so it's not just playing through the same old thing again. That's good to know. Oh yeah, in fact, they say this is not a port. And the platforms they plan to support will be Windows, Mac, iOS, and Android. Earlier in our show, we talked about uh, David Finnegan, um, and he comes up again. Because the book that he published early, earlier this year, the new Apple II User's Guide, has been reduced in price by about $5. Uh, it looks like that is a time-limited reduction. Uh, it doesn't say when it will go back up, uh, but it looks like he's doing this in conjunction with his release, uh, his upcoming release of a second edition of the book, as well as an ebook version. Now, Jeff, have you taken a look at the, at this guide yet? Uh, yes, yes. I uh, got a copy while I was at Kansas Fest, and I I hate to admit that I haven't read the book. Actually, I did page through, uh, well, you know, flip over some of the pages. Sure. Uh, tons and tons of stuff. I'm not the right target audience for it, um, but for those who are getting into Apple IIs, who just have a basic background of Apple IIs, um, it's basically... I mean, there's so much stuff, um, and it's it's more than just a great introduction. Uh, it uh, uh, dives into hardware, uh, programming, uh, software, and um, one of the cool things was I helped write a section of the book about the Spectrum Internet Suite um, software that uh, um, the uh, the section about Sys uh, was written by me. Oh, cool! So I explained how to install it and some of the great features in it. I thought it was great when, of course, it was written, but um, it, it's it's showing its age. Not everybody has always uncovered um, all the features in it, and I wanted to make sure I highlighted um, some of the more important um, functionality. Yeah, and that's that's the great thing about this book, I think. Um, what really sets it apart from a lot of these older Apple II books that you could buy used or on eBay or something like that is that, that David's new book covers a lot of the newer hardware and software that's come out since uh since Apple discontinued the the two line and and the the publish the book publishing industry since that dried up uh, you know after after the discontinuation of the Apple II and those books aren't being published anymore and so this newer stuff wasn't really covered that well and he does a good job with that I think um I think like you uh this this I'm not really the target demographic for this book although I have found that it's a handy reference just to look something up real quick if I need to. It's a nice guide for that. Uh, and at, for $5 cheaper, it's it's an even better buy. So, And for those who don't always have Google handy to find stuff, um, a, a book is always great. Sure, yep. In, in fact, the ebook thing is nice, too, if you have an iPad. you know, Then you have the, the built-in search function, so you don't have to page through it or do the index. Of course, some people enjoy that, that sort of thing, and that's great, too. 
We talked a few minutes ago about gaming uh, with Shadowgates and Shizen. What about Castle Wolfenstein? Was that one that you you played? Uh, yes, I played the original Castle Wolfenstein. I I wasn't necessarily that good with it, and I didn't play it that frequently. But um, yes, I remember do I remember playing it. Yes. So so then, would a Castle Wolfenstein movie be something that you would go see? I didn't know that there was a movie that was going that went beyond um, initial talk. So, um, are you telling me there's a movie coming out soon? <laughs> yes, I'm very surprised. Tell me more. Uh, so this this one is still uh, in in planet in the. I guess it's not it's not pre production. It's uh, a little bit earlier in development than that, but it is in development. Panorama Media uh, and Samuel Hadida announced that they will produce an action-adventure film inspired by the World War II set video game franchise Castle Wolfenstein. Uh, it will be directed by Roger Avery. Um, he will he will write and direct this picture. Uh, this picture, and he he was also the guy I guess who did some writing on Pulp Fiction. Um, this movie is being described as being in the vein of Captain America and Inglorious Bastards. And there's not a whole lot out about it yet, so I, I think it's still pretty much in, in early development. But uh, I, for one, will probably see this movie. Um, I there, I do have some trepidation just because video games don't always translate very well to movies. Um, do you remember Doom? <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to mention. <laughs> <laughs> how bad that was. Um, but, but it sounds but, like there's going to be a lot of killing. So yes, probably might be so. lots of... Gory fun. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. Jeff, are you a big eBay buyer, seller, mover, and shaker? Um, none of the above. Okay. <laughs> I have an eBay account, never used it. I see. Any particular reason that you haven't? Just Um can I say crap on the on the podcast? Of course you can, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's usually too much crap. Um so uh that's the reason why I don't buy stuff from eBay. I, I generally don't like buying used stuff, which is the first thing. Mm -hmm. Um it tends to not last as long. So that's the reason why I don't buy from eBay and then for selling, um I don't usually sell stuff. If I don't want something, I usually, usually just give it away. Gotcha. Okay. So, so you're not, and, and I, I seem to remember this, you saying this at, at Kansas Fest to me at one point, you're not a big collector, are you? Oh, okay. And that's the other side. Um, from the Apple II side, no, I, I do not consider myself a collector of Apple IIs. Um, I, you know, up until recently, generally just have my 2GS that I had, you know, when I was a kid and didn't, go beyond, you know, adding more hardware or um, or trying to expand its capabilities uh, since I most of my Apple II GS usage uh, nowadays tend to be through an emulator. Okay. Uh, and I like the advantage of emulators where I can, you know, make bigger, better things within the emulator environment that you don't necessarily can guess, necessarily have or get on the real hardware. Okay. And and as I recall you're a you're a Sun Microsystems guy, is that right? For you use a Solaris? And uh, it's, the the hesitation is um I ha there's a certain affinity uh when I was um to things that are Sun. Yes, I can talk about that as just uh, maybe maybe not quite as well, but um to a certain degree like the Apple 2s. 
Okay. Well, the reason I ask is I, I'm not familiar. I'm not as familiar with with that particular platform. What sort of emulation options do you have on Sun? Uh, the emulator of choice, uh, the emulator that uh, pretty much works on all major platforms, is Kegs, and now the later version of it called uh, GS Port. Okay. And uh, so that's open source. Uh, it's an open source um, emulator, and it will compile on um, all the major, um, well, of course, all the, all modern major computers, Linux, Mac, Windows. And it has uh, support for Solaris, HP, and um, I've seen people compile it for really esoteric um, old Unix-like systems as well. Okay, so so it's a it's a full-featured emulator. You don't feel like you're missing anything. In in GSPort, there's some features that are only in Windows or only in one platform or the other. So we'll take another developer to uh, port the code to another uh, platform. But if we look back at the, the slightly older version of kegs, uh, feature-wise, almost all features work across all platforms. Okay, so it sounds like it's a fully, or a, at least fairly mature product then. Oh, absolutely. It, the, fe- the features that you expect to work in an emulator work correctly across all major, flaf- all major platforms and those that you compile it yourself as well. Cool. Okay. Sorry, folks, for that little uh, detour there, but that sort of thing always interests me. It looks like we have a couple uh, items here. The first one was the Mimic Systems Spartan computer. Now, this may not be as familiar to a lot of our Apple II users. It was a, basically it's a hardware Apple II Plus emulator for the Commodore 64. Plugs into your 64 and it allows you to use Apple II Plus compatible hardware and software. Um, this particular auction has ended and then it sold for a whopping $1,552. And I don't know, I, I hope I don't get in too much trouble for saying this, but I don't know what a Commodore 64 user would really gain by purchasing an Apple II Plus emulator because the 64 had better graphics and sound. And what else would you want if you're using a 64? I mean, it's mostly, mostly a game platform, I would think. Do you know how how many of these units were sold? Are these things uh, considered very rare? I think they're pretty rare. Yeah, I I don't I my one of my friends actually one of my Commodore friends had one of these when I was growing up. He he never used it. He didn't find find any use for it. But as I recall, they were fairly expensive. And and like I said, I think most Commodore users took a look at that and said, "Why would I want this?" Um, I mean, I know there's lots of collectors in the Commodore sixty four uh, community, so this oh, yeah. might be targeted for one of those. Yep, I'm. I'm yeah, well, you. I think you have to have a Commodore to use this. It's not a standalone machine. It's not gonna. It's not just gonna work out of the box. I think. I think this box had like ten or eleven Apple II slots in it. There's eight slots in it. Actually, there's eight slots plus three. So you do get some expanded capabilities, I guess, but. The uh, the original box the box says that the uh, Spartan was developed to bring the expanded hardware and software features of the Apple II Plus to your Commodore 64. We think the Commodore 64 is an excellent introductory computer system. Our goal in designing the Spartan was simple: to take what you already have and give you more. And I guess from that perspective, maybe it makes a little bit of sense. I know that the 64 was not nearly as expandable. Uh, at least not easily expandable like the Apple II was. It had some hardware ports that you could plug things into, but it wasn't like the Apple II where you could open open it up and just fill the slots with whatever you wanted. So maybe that's what they were going for. 
And the other item, the only other item that we have this month was um, the a 1982 vintage EdLab microcomputer Franklin Apple clone teaching system. Uh, and it looks like this was an educational type system uh, designed to teach you programming and electronics. Um, and it was based around the Franklin Ace line of Apple II clones. Uh, looks like you've got various testing ports and uh, a couple of expansion slots that you can play around with. I never even knew that existed until now. And I didn't even know Franklin made uh, Apple II clones in platforms other than the 1000, 1200, and the, uh, you know, the, the 500 and the, the, the later models as well. Hmm. I don't know if... Franklin actually made this, or maybe somebody else took a Franklin computer and turned it into a, a lab, because um, it says at the top there, at the top of the, the unit, uh, it says it's CES Ed Lab. So I, I don't know, copyright 1982 CES Industries. So it looks like another company took a Franklin computer and stuck it in this box. And all the ports on the box are probably connected somewhere on the motherboard for uh, hardware connections and probably need special software to use it. I would think so. Yeah, it looks like there's a pretty thick... Uh, Bundle of wires. Yes, plugging into a card uh, on the board. So, yeah, this is a pretty specific thing, but I guess if you're interested in, in learning technology on a hardware level from, from that time period, it might be something fun to play with for a little while. It says the listing is ended... Uh, it doesn't look like anyone bid on it. He was asking a starting selling price of $300. And, and I guess it doesn't surprise me that, oh, no, it does. It says sold. So somebody bought that. I'd be interested to hear from the buyer why they bought that. Is this just going to go on the shelf as some sort of, hey, cool, look at this piece of weird Apple hardware, or if they're planning to do something with it? And if there's any documentation for the hardware specs, so you can write code to actually uh, use it. Yeah, that would be neat. Maybe if, maybe whoever bought it will bring it to Kansas Fest and show us. Another Apple One is going up for sale. If you've been paying attention to Apple news recently, there was another one that went uh, on the auction block at Christie's of New York. Uh, at the end of October, they were hoping that it would sell for $124,000. It did not sell. Um, I guess there was a, a reserve price of $80,000 on it, and it didn't reach that. Um, that particular model was missing RAM chips, and it wasn't working. So I guess I'm not really all that surprised that it didn't sell. Because if I think if you're spending that kind of money, you're you're a high-end collector. You're not necessarily somebody who's going to be hacking on a, a real Apple One. If you're looking for a working Apple One, another one is going up for auction at the end of this month. Um, this one not only is working, but it comes with a whole bunch of peripherals and it has the original... Um, manuals, uh, it has a, the, the cassette card and Apple One tapes, although those are, uh, it says those are reproductions. It does come with the black, uh, nine, black and white nine inch Sanyo, uh, monitor that Apple recommended that you buy when you bought an Apple One. Uh, comes with, uh, an original power transformer and a Datanetics uh, ASCII keyboard, which is also what Apple recommended that you you buy when you bought one of these, because when you bought an Apple One, you just got the board, and that was it. And it was up to you to put it together and, and make it do stuff. It did not come with a case. That's right. Yep. Uh, and so this, I think, is one of the more complete 
Apple ones that I've seen go up for sale. I imagine it probably will sell for whatever they're asking. Um, it doesn't look like it has the original ceramic white 6502 CPU in it, but I don't know that I don't think that's going to stop it from being sold. Uh, so if you have a couple of hundred thousand dollars just lying around and you're wondering what to do with it, hey, you can you can bid on this thing. Sell a house, buy an Apple One. That's right. Yeah, your wife will love you for it. I'm sure. What do you think about these all these Apple Ones being auctioned off lately? Uh, actually, to be honest, I didn't catch the last one from Christie's. Um, so this is actually the uh, the only other one I knew about from uh, since uh, another one from a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm surprised for as few Apple Ones that are, I mean, that are out there. Um, and all of a sudden, they're showing up 30 years later, um, commanding high prices. Where have they been hiding? I, I imagine when the first one went up for sale a while back, people who had these things saw it and went, whoa, I could make a whole lot of money on this. When they, when they started selling, I, I guess the first Apple ones that I saw for auction actually went on eBay, and they were going for fifteen dollars or $20,000 at the time, which was still fairly expensive, but it's gotten kind of crazy now. So as the prices go up, these people who had them and don't necessarily care about the care about keeping this anymore and just want the money are bringing them out and putting them up for sale. It's a great investment. When you ask me what I think about it, uh, you know, for those who have it, great. Uh, for those who don't have it, I don't even I don't have an interest in having an Apple One. Uh, there, there's just so many things about it that I, I just can't relate to the uh, the original Apple hardware from that time period. Yeah, I think these these things at this point are really for high end collectors and not for for hackers and people who actually want to use this stuff. Because if you want to use, if you really want to use an Apple One, there are plenty of um, uh, options that you have today that don't cost nearly this much money. You've got Vince Breel's got his uh, the replica one, um, which I think is a work alike. It doesn't look like an Apple One, but it works just like one. Mike Willigal has the Brainboard, which you can plug into your Apple II, and with uh, with a, the right ROM, it'll emulate an Apple One. And he's also got uh, has his Apple One Mimeo project, which is a, a hardware replica. It looks and acts just like an Apple One, and even that's quite a bit cheaper than than these originals, obviously. So there are certainly options uh, if you if you're somebody who actually wants to use one. I imagine most of these will go into museums. Um, and I think that pretty much brings us to the end of this month's uh, Open Apple Podcast. Ken will be back, I hope, next month um, for everybody who can't stand the sound of my voice. And Jeff, did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, so if Ken has met Elvis on his trip to Mars, we'll love to hear about it. <laughs> I'm sure he'll tell us all about it. Well, uh, thank you for, for spending an hour or so with me and uh, filling in for Ken. I think he did a great job. Well, thank you very much. Sure. And uh, to everybody else, we'll talk to you soon. net.